Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 144, Cooking Wild Turkey with Scott Lasath. And I am your host and the guy who is still working on the house and has yet to put his boat in the water. But as I've been telling you, that list of to-dos around the house is getting done and shorter and more items marked off. And I'm about to mark off painting the house. I'm about to mark off resodding the front yard. And once I do that, my exterior projects my major exterior projects are done and I'm trying to squeeze in that fishing trip for the weekend so we shall see how that turns out and I'll let you guys know next week if I was able to hit the water so today we are 231 days 14 hours 17 minutes and 30 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama And before we get into this week's show, I want to read a tweet, actually a direct message I got on Twitter, from Tyler Brown. And Tyler says, Andy, I'd first like to say I love listening to your show and I'm a pronounced turkey hunting addict. I'm embarking on my journey next year of trying to kill one in every state, and I'm proud to say you inspired me. I'm proud to hear that I inspired you, Tyler. It's going to be a great time. You're going to enjoy doing that. And Tyler says, So I've been doing lots of research, and I have hunts set up next year in Florida and Minnesota, both for different reasons. I am also from Alabama. I live in Mobile, and I have done all of my hunting thus far in state. I like your idea of joining clubs in adjoining states, but I was wondering if you had any rhyme or reason as to which states you hit from year to year. I was also wondering if you like that 20 gauge. That's what I'm thinking about going to with all the advancements in TSS, specifically Apex. Any feedback would be much appreciated. Thanks, bud. Tyler, thank you so much for your direct message on Twitter. For those of you who don't know, I much prefer Twitter over Facebook. The drama on Twitter is limited to so many fewer characters than the drama on Facebook. So there's less drama to be had on Twitter, and I love the brevity of the tweets and the information that comes through there. So I get your messages on Twitter, 
much quicker than I do messages on Facebook. I rarely check messages on Facebook. And for those of you who have messaged me on Facebook in the past few months, well, you probably already know that I rarely check messages because I was returning messages from May just this past week. So if you want to reach me, I much prefer you either email me at andy at iamturkeyhunting.com or you send me a DM on Twitter where my handle on Twitter is at turkeyhitman, H-I-T-M-A-N, at turkeyhitman. So, Tyler, the answer to your question of is there any rhyme or reason as to why I pick the states that I pick? Right now, there is some method to the madness in how my buddies and I pick states that we want to hunt next year. First thing is we try to find an area where we can hit a couple of adjoining states each year. That way, we can at least get the opportunity to mark off two states from the list. If we're successful in those two states, then we can possibly get a third state in, much the way we did North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana about three or four years ago. So that's the first thing that we look at. The second thing that we look at is this. I'm 46 years old, and I am not old by any means, especially especially mentally. So over the past 10 or 15 years, I've recognized that I can still do a lot of the things that I could when I was younger, but I don't recover from them as quickly or as easily as I used to. And I also acknowledge now that I'm getting older that I'm not guaranteed tomorrow, nor am I guaranteed my health tomorrow either. So because me and my buddies are still physically able and willing to walk up and down mountains chasing turkeys, we are trying to mark off the list those states that are more mountainous than others. So right now we're focused really on going out west and tackling the mountainous states there. And it was interesting this year that we just about unanimously picked Idaho and Washington as the states that we wanted to hit. our trip for next year. So when we started on this venture, on this quest of completing the Super Slam, it really was more or less just where we were interested in going. It wasn't that we had any real incentive in choosing a location other than we wanted to extend our hunting season. And that still factors in a little bit, I think, in our decision of where we go. But we're getting to that point to where Pretty much every state that we're going to go to from this point on is going to have a longer, I can't say longer, is going to have a later running turkey season than we have here in Alabama. So the opportunity of extending our season is usually not much of a consideration in choosing where we go to hunt turkeys the following year, but it does factor in a little bit. And so I would recommend to everyone out there who wants to get started on a super slam to really look at those areas of the country where there are birds, huntable populations of birds in states that border one another and have seasons that run similar to one another so that you can possibly mark off two or three of those states at a time. The second thing that you wanted to know, Tyler, is how I like that 20 gauge. 
So the only thing I don't like about my 20 gauge is this. I still have not named her. That's it. I really like everything about that gun. It has a short barrel, so I can maneuver it in the woods very easily. It is extremely light. With the new recoil pad I have on there, it absorbs a good bit of the recoil from shooting those magnum shells. And the pattern out of that gun, it's unreal. So there's nothing I don't like about it. And it sounds like you listened to that episode when I had Apex Ammunition on the show. And in the way that their ammo performs and the way that that TSS shot performs, you're getting more pellets downrange. You're getting more killing power, more penetration with a smaller pellet by shooting TSS than you would shooting a 12 gauge with over-the-counter loads. So really, there's no reason not to shoot a 20 gauge. And like I said in the show with Apex Ammunition, I will not be putting my 12 gauge Black Death in the gun safe to stay forever. But I probably will be buying some TSS shotgun shells for Black Death and probably will back down from shooting those three and a half inch shells to shooting some either three inch or two and three quarter inch 12 gauge TSS shells out of her. I like Black Death. And as soon as I name that 20 gauge, I'm going to like her even more. All right, we're going to jump into today's show. I've got to get back outside on a boom lift and get some painting done. I had some rotten fascia board and some rotten soffit on the front of my house from a gutter that was leaking for a long period of time. And I got that repaired and I've got to get up there and get that painted. So we're getting into the show. I've been wanting to get Scott Laysath back on the show for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, he is just genuinely a nice guy. And he really truly has a desire to teach all of us how to cook our wild game so that it's tastier and more enjoyable. Secondly, I am always looking for better ways to prepare and cook wild turkey, and I know you guys are too. So without any further delay, here is the sporting chef, Scott Laysath, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Hey everybody, I am glad to tell you that I've got on the line with me today Scott Laysath. And Scott, as you know, if you listen to about episode 6 or 7 or 8 of this show, and if you never watch TV and you never read books and you never see the internet, then you know from listening to my show that Scott is the sporting chef. But you probably know him from his own show and from his cookbooks and from the internet. And I'm glad to have Scott on the phone because I know that you guys listening have turkey in your freezer that we need to cook. Because deer season's coming up and dove season's coming up. It's going to be time to hunt those pheasants and all other game, elk and all that fun stuff. And we need to make some room in the freezer and we're going to do that today or at least learn how we can do that today and make our taste buds happy. Scott, how are you and where are you today? I'm good, man. I am in Northern California, and 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 as always, I have to make sure that I I say that it's Northern California, not the one you see on TV. And it's good to be home. I I spend a lot of time on the road, and so I'm always happy when I'm home. Good deal. Well, Northern California is not the California that's going to fall off of the United States, is it? Uh, <laughs> well, there are some people that would like parts of California to fall off in the United States. We actually, there's a group here 
in Northern California that are trying to get Northern California to secede from the rest of California and call it the state of Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure they're going to get the job done, but yeah. I think as far as the fault line goes, I think and I'm around Sacramento, so I think we're relatively safe. Okay. So. All right. Well, that's good to hear. So I asked you this question when I did the interview with you a while back. That's been about three years ago that we did our first interview. And so give me a little refresher and everybody else listening. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into cooking and how you got into turkey hunting as well. Well, I, you know, I grew up in Virginia as a kid. We had, we were one of the few states that actually had turkeys. Mm-hmm. And we would go, our standard deal in the spring was to go spring gobbler and opening of trout season uh, weekend. Um, except in Virginia, you couldn't, you couldn't hunt. And still, I think in a lot of places in Virginia, you can't hunt on Sundays. So that kind of made it a little difficult. But just close by, I mean, I had turkeys within half hour, 45 minutes of me. When I was going to school, I was working as a bouncer. And somebody said, the manager said, you want to be a manager. So I got a two-week training course on how to be a cook, bartender, and manager. Got sent from Tucson to Phoenix. And thus began my restaurant career, ended up being vice president of the 33-unit chain. Um, Always cooked, always hunted, and it's always been a passion of mine. I remember the first game animal I killed was a jack snipe, and I brought it home and cooked it for about an hour and a half. And it was really, really bad, and yet I didn't want to let on my two older brothers for making making fun of me for turning this thing into a completely burnt piece of charcoal, mm-hmm. and it tasted really bad. But uh, I've since learned that there's there are easier ways to cook a jack's knife and everything else, and I'm very fortunate to be able to cook fish and game for a living. I mean, uh, one of the things I, I just got done on Sunday, I was in Indianapolis feeding venison sloppy joes to some homeless folks there we have a program called hunt fish feed with sportsman channel that i've been the executive chef for 10 years where we've fed over 90 shelters military shelters homeless veterans places like that where we're feeding them wild hogs and venison and salmon and things like that and so that's awesome in addition in addition to having the sporting chef tv show on sportsman channel I get to do some pretty good stuff. I get it's it's fun. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be very rewarding. And you know, don't let the antis hear that we hunters are out there doing good things. No, you know, and and there's you can't argue when we're feeding the homeless folks. We're not getting nobody's protesting that, right? That's right. When when we're you know when we've got hunting organizations and sportsmen's organizations that are donating hundreds of pounds of meat to feed five or 600 people at a time, mm-hmm. nobody's saying, I can't believe they're doing that because yeah. um, they can't. They don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. You know, one of the local homeless shelters here in Birmingham, when I was, I remember being in high school and in college, when we would clean out our freezer, we would take the venison that we had left over from the season because we, at that time, were killing quite a few deer a year, and I'm not going to say how many it was. But it just turned out to be more than we could eat. So we would take it to the homeless shelter or one of the homeless shelters here in Birmingham. And they would welcome us with open arms when we would come in there. Oh, these guys, these guys are going to be so excited. And, you know, thank you for bringing this in. Now, this is unprocessed meat. Well, right. things have evolved, and it went from, well, we can't take your unprocessed meat to, okay, we can take your processed meat, 
And then it went from, well, you can't even take your processed meat that's uncooked. If you cook it and you have leftovers, you can bring it. And now, with all the regulations and health department and all that stuff, you can't even do that. They won't even take it cooked for you to bring it it's, leftover. You know, it's got to be It's crazy. That's, I don't know if that's a county thing or a state thing in Alabama. We've got... We've run into that. The single largest source of protein that's uh, donated to shelters in Virginia is deer meat donated by hunters. They welcome it with open arms. Thank you. And, and we did one in New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy, and the state said, don't ever do that again. Wow. It was not USDA inspected meat. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I feel, don't you feel safer now that you got somebody protecting you from this? Having to eat that horrible deer meat? Absolutely, yeah. You yeah. know, yeah. I, I I can't tell you how many times I've gotten food poisoning off of USDA inspected meat. Right, and I can right. I can tell you how many times I've gotten food poisoning off of venison or wild That's turkey zero. or any other game right. that right. I've taken. Right, yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah, well. That's what we have to deal with, and unfortunately, you know, the the men and women in the homeless shelters are the one that are the ones that are getting, uh, I guess, the short end of that deal. Uh, from well, and for folks that aren't in such a, res- a restricted area too, they should. I want to encourage them to contact their churches, food banks, shelters, and and you know, they don't want you to drop a deer off on the back patio. Yeah. But if you can get it broken down and processed, a lot of, you know, ground is probably what they can use the most of. Mm -hmm. And we often grind way too much of our deer anyway. Um, And so contact them. Let them know you've got it packaged. It's frozen. You can hang on to it. And I'll bet you you can find a place that will take the meat from you. Yeah, yeah. Very good advice. So I've got a question for you that. I usually say for the end of the show, but I want to hit it now before you and I get down to the nitty gritty here and start talking some actual cooking and recipes and brining and all sorts of fun stuff like that that we're going to talk about. But tell us where we can find the Sporting Chef, the show, and your cookbooks, and if you've got anything new coming down the pipe anytime soon. You know, the Sporting Chef show is on Sportsman Channel January through June. Um, You can get it on My Outdoor TV, the uh, Outdoor Sportsman Group, which is Outdoor Channel, Sportsman Channel, and World Fishing Network. They have a new app, My Outdoor TV, and I know the first week is free, but there is something like 10,000 episodes from all those networks on this app that you can watch anytime. I have a Sporting Chef YouTube channel that's all broken into parts and different people that are on the show that's really easy to watch. Cookbook, my current cookbook is the Sporting Chef's Better Venison Cookbook. It's easiest to get on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of older ones on there too, but the venison book is my favorite right now. If you go to the website, the Sporting Chef website, there's enough recipes there to hold you for a long time. You don't have to buy anything. If you go there, sign up for the newsletter. We send you new stuff all the time. Don't We don't want your information. We're not going to sell it to Russia or anything else. We just want you to... <laughs> We just want to stay connected to you. So I'm easy to find. I'm, I'm on a lot of other people's shows all the time. I'm the cooking editor for DU Magazine. So if you're a duck hunter, I'm always in there. And I've put some other publications around the country. But sportingchef.com, if you're just looking for a bunch of recipes, it's there and it's free. Yeah, good deal. Well, and I think I I need to probably tell the story again about how I first met you. And I know you've only met probably about... 20,000 people since you and I met because it's been about 15 years ago. But 
you actually did a demo in Birmingham, and a friend of mine and one of his co-workers hired you to come in and, and cook some wild game for us. And that really opened my eyes because, well, we got to try a lot of stuff. That's the best rabbit I've ever had in my life that you cooked, by the way. Oh, good. Um, I don't think I'd ever had a pheasant before you cooked one. I had rattlesnake before, but it was pretty good. You didn't cook anything bad. I, I, nothing in there was bad, but it was, it was, you were combining ingredients that, with this wild game that I never would have thought to have pulled out of the refrigerator and cooked with wild game. And it really was eye-opening for me, and it was a great experience. And I encourage anyone who has the opportunity to come to any of your demos or your tastings that they do that because they will not regret that. That was awesome. Well, well, you know, and you'll you notice that I don't, even though they might have been ingredients that you didn't think you, you wouldn't have used, but it was in there. It was pretty basic stuff that you can find in just about it any was. refrigerator. Yeah. I don't. I'm not trying to outchef anybody. I'm not looking for the latest free range obscure ingredient. I want my, you know, my animals are free ranging, right? So I, I don't. You're, you don't have to go Google whatever ingredient it is and find out what was he just talking about. Yeah. Um. You know, you use you use animals that are in good shape. You use produce that's in season, and you don't overcook it. And for the most part, things are going to turn out pretty good. Very true. Yeah. Yeah, there. I don't think there was a single ingredient that you used that I would have had to have ordered off the internet and gotten shipped to me from some foreign country I can't pronounce. Who knows where? Right. Yeah. Right. So it, it was all. All the ingredients were very readily available, and so that was pretty cool. So let's jump in here. I, I actually got this question from a listener back in January, believe it or not, and I remembered it because. Heck, I want to know it. So a friend of the show, a really good friend of the show, Bob Smith in Pennsylvania, he asked, what is the easiest way to remove the silver sinew that is around each turkey breast, that covers each turkey breast? Is there an easy way to do that? You know, I just use a thin bladed, sharp, small knife, not a big chef's knife. Mm -hmm. And I will put it with that sinew side down on a uh, cutting surface and then bevel the knife towards that sinew side so that you're not taking a bunch of meat off. And it, it usually slides right off. If you leave a little bit of it, that, that silver skin on the outside is going to go away for the most part. And a, what it's, what's easier a lot of times than, than removing that sinew is if you get a, there's a tenderizing deal, a Victor makes one, Jacquard makes another one, mm -hmm. and it's got these stain, flat stainless steel blades. Uh, there's three rows of them, and it's spring-loaded, and it pushes down, in the, and it just basically cuts through the connective tissue of, the, of a turkey breast, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, make, doesn't turn it into hamburger. It doesn't make it look any different, doesn't feel any different, but what it does is it's going to put cuts in that sinew also so that when you brown it, it's basically going to disintegrate, but you know, there's there's a grisly line that's about on the where it connects to the body right. um, that I like to remove too. That's a little bit more pronounced than that outside sinew. Mm -hmm. I normally work that around too, because, and I and on a bigger bird, I'm going to butterfly the breast anyway because I want it to be about half as thick as it is. Because if you're cooking a whole turkey breast, especially a big old tom, it's thick. And so by the time you get the inside until it's just right, about 145 degrees, the outside is going to be dried out. So if you butterfly it, 
so that it's half its normal thickness, it's a lot easier to control the temperature inside and outside. And as we've probably mentioned before, the thicker it is, the slower you want to cook it. The more time you want to take to cook it, because if you rush it, you're just going to have this dry outside before you get to the moist inside. Okay. All right. Now, are you using a meat thermometer when you cook turkey? You know, I don't, but I think okay. other people, other people that are you that are have had experiences with dry turkey, I highly recommend a meat thermometer. I can push down on it and tell and tell how it's cooked. Right. Just like you know, it's a guy that's working a steakhouse. Steak. Yeah. He's not cutting holes in the steak and looking inside and going, "Well, that's medium rare." Mm-hmm. He knows what medium rare feels like. If you're worried about salmonella and you know chicken related things, don't. Um, if your turkey is a little bit underdone it's for you, you can always throw it back in the oven, but you can't True. uncook it. So, you know, a, a pop-up thermometer on a domestic turkey comes out at about 185. If you do 185 wow. on, a dom- on a wild turkey, it's sawdust. Yeah. I go 145 to 155 on my wild turkey, but then I'm going to let it rest for a little while, and I always cook it in parts. I don't cook whole turkeys because that just, just doesn't make any sense. But again, if it's 145 in the center, um, and there's, we can talk about all sorts of different ways to do it. Um, nothing, nothing bad is going to happen. Everything dies. Okay. And are we kind of semi defeating the purpose of putting of what we're trying to achieve when we put that meat thermometer in the turkey breast, and now we've punched a hole in it, and those juices are starting to drain out? Or are we not going to lose? It's not going to drain out. Okay. You're basically just going to affect where you put that thermometer in isn't going to drain the whole breast. It's that little pocket where you put it in, it's going to, it's, there's going to be some juice coming out of it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't overcook it, that turkey's not going to be dry. Okay. The, the, the normal course of the conversation, we're going to talk about brine at some point, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm going to tell everybody why they should brine their turkeys. Let's do it now because that is actually the next question on my list. So you introduced me to brining three years ago, brining wild turkeys. Right. Three years ago when, when we did the show then, and now I'm brining all of my birds that I cook, whether it's doves <laughs> or right. turkeys or chicken from the store, whatever it happens to be, because it makes a huge difference. I'm really blown away and kind of upset that I went all those years cooking wild turkey and not knowing how big of a deal brining is for the flavor of the turkey and, and the tenderness as well. And I'm using really a basic saltwater brine. I, I mean, it's just that. It's salt and water. That is it. Right. So am I missing out on a little bit of something for my taste buds by not spicing up or sprucing up my brine? Well, you can add flavor to it. And, and I have a sponsor of the show, High Mountain Seasonings. It makes a gourmet game bird and poultry brine that has a little bit of sodium nitrite in it. It's got some more flavor in it. But it makes a big difference. If if you use, say, with a half a gallon of water, add to a half gallon of water, add a half a cup of kosher salt or any kind of coarse salt, and you're going to need to heat up some of that water to dissolve the salt. Um, I also use a half cup of brown sugar, but you can add all sorts of dry seasonings to that. Just don't dilute the half cup of kosher salt or coarse salt to a, a half a gallon of water ratio. That's the ratio where the brine will pass through the turkey um, and it's going to add moisture. It's going to add flavor. It'll cook faster because it's added moisture to the inside. It'll be much less likely to dry out. 
And I don't care if it's like you say, a chicken, a quail, a pheasant, a chucker, a domestic turkey. If you brine it, brining is that simple. And I've talked to people about brining for decades, and uh, and they'll say, no, I still haven't done that yet. And I'm thinking, just soak it in salt water. Yeah, it's gonna make such a big difference as long as you use the right ratio of water and salt. And like you said, if it if all you use is is a coarse salt and water. It will make your turkey taste better, and it'll be it'll be more juicy. Yeah. So why doesn't everybody do it, right? You're exactly right. Why do they resist? I don't know. Uh, I will not. I will not cook another turkey, and I'm not cooking any chicken from the store without brining it first. And when I brine, I brine, I brine every one of them. Yeah. Yeah. When I brine chicken and throw it on the grill. I'm not worried about watching the grill. And my wife is right. like, you're going to burn that chicken, and I'll pull it off, and the skin will be burned. And she's, you burned it. Well, pull the skin off of it. And it's just as tender and moist as it can be on the inside. And it, it's huge. I mean, it's make, made I, such I, a big I, difference. I'm, and I know that you've, you've told people about it, and they still haven't done it, right? I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know why they resist. And you know, pe- there are some people that just don't understand the concept of brining and why we brine. But we're telling them that right now. You do it because you're. I, I'm. I'm. You know. I, I told you I'm the cooking editor for DU Magazine. Mm-hmm. I don't cook a duck or a goose without soaking it in brine for at least twelve hours. Yeah. Um. We lose a lot of people when they see any kind of juice in a duck or a deer or whatever, and they go, "I just don't like to see that blood." And it's not blood, but when you put the brine in there, it's going to eliminate whatever blood or bloody juices are in there, and it's going to replace it with brine, and it's going to be a milder-tasting bird that's going to be more moist. It's going to have better flavor, but you haven't compromised the natural flavor of the animal at all. Mm-hmm. You're not covering it up with some dark, overpowering marinade and wrapping it in bacon and saying, wow, this is so good, it doesn't even taste like turkey anymore. Right. It still tastes like turkey, but it tastes like a, a taste better than an unbrined turkey. Yeah, yeah. That drives me crazy. How it's like mixing cola with liquor. <laughs> I just like heard that liquor. on the plane the other day. Yeah, a guy yeah. ordered a, a what uh, some kind of scotch with uh, it was scotch with a diet coke. I'm thinking, really? Yeah. Are you sure you want to do that? You don't like scotch. <laughs> I mean, that's right. really what it boils down to. It's it's the same thing you, with coffee. Drink something else. You know, right. it drives me crazy to see people take. And I don't drink coffee, but it drives me crazy to see people take coffee and pour a half a gallon of creamer in it. Dump, uh, hazelnut creamer, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Dump 87 packets of sugar and top it off with some whipped cream. I'm like, you don't like coffee. You you don't you don't like <laughs> coffee, right? If you're doing all this Makes stuff. Sense. You don't like it. So don't don't cover up the taste of these animals that we're cooking scott is dead on with that and you know i agree with you uh that that runs me crazy there so do you typically brine use the same brine no matter how you're preparing your turkey you're using half a cup of coarse or kosher salt and half a cup of brown sugar all the time no matter how you're preparing that bird you know, pretty much, and but I'll also, but I'll use the high mountain products a lot, and then I'll, if I'm, if I'm making my own brine, I'll throw in some dry Italian seasoning, maybe a little garlic powder, um, something that will 
carry those flavors through, but it's again, they're, it's not going to, it's not going to overpower them. Mm. You can add seasonings. If I wanted to add, make it a little spicy, I can put a little bit of cayenne pepper in there. Just don't dilute it with other liquids, but you can add other dry seasonings to give your brine more flavor. There's people that make their own brine mixes all the time that have peppercorns and all that stuff in it. And it's great. It's going to give it flavor. It's going to be subtle. And so feel free to create your own brine. Just keep that Keep that half cup of coarse salt to a half gallon of water or one gallon to a cup, if that's easy to remember. Keep that ratio the same, and then you can go ahead and add whatever dry ingredients you want. Okay. And then my last question for you about brine is this. We keep saying kosher salt or coarse salt, and that's not the same as table salt. What is the difference? Uh, The table salt is a much finer grind. So if you can picture, if you put a bunch of ping pong balls together, as opposed to basketballs, there's a lot more airspace in between those basketballs than there is in the ping pong balls. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a bucket full of ping pong balls and a bucket full of ba- basketballs, there's a lot more airspace in the basketball. So if you use table salt, I've, on a, for a gallon of water, I'm going to use about three quarter, two-thirds to three-quarter cup of table salt, fine grind salt. Otherwise, your brine is going to be way too salty. Um, I like, that's why, I mean, you, for two bucks, you can buy a big box of kosher salt, which I have in the kitchen anyway. Um, and, and so, but all, if all you have is table salt and you want to, and you want to do a brine today for a gallon of water, use about three quarters of a cup of table salt. Otherwise your brine's going to be way too salty. Okay. All right. I wanted to throw that out there because there is a, a difference and oh, yeah. yeah, we don't want, um, we don't want anybody having their lips pucker up after they taste that bird because the brine was too salty. Yeah, the the bird tasted okay, but it was really salty, and I ended up drinking 12 beers to go with it. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that second part. (laughs) Well, depends on what you if you got work to do. Well, you're right about that. You're right about that. Now, are there some spices that just always work well with wild turkey? You know, I use black pepper and garlic or garlic salt. Or you know, if I'm brining, I don't use any other salt when I get ready to prepare the turkey. I, it's it's right. salted enough, so I'll use garlic powder, which I'd rather much rather use fresh garlic. But here we are. So I'm using, regardless, I'm using, are there any other spices that just jump out at you and say, Andy, you need to be using this all the time? You know, I use a, a lot of dry herbs if I'm putting it on a rub early. Um, and if, or if I'm doing a marinade with it, you know, after I've brined it, um, I will typically give mine a rub with salt, pepper, garlic, maybe a little onion powder. Um, some that just Italian seasoning is going to give it a different dimension. Um, I just don't like to bury it with, again, the, the, the marinades that are, that all taste like a combination of Worcestershire and right. kerosene. So, you know, I, I, it kind of depends, you know, if you're, if you feel like you want to do something kind of a Southwestern flavor, then I'm going to add some, some Southwestern seasonings or some Cajun spice. It, nothing is, unless you're going to, unless you really want to overpower that turkey and you just don't like to taste a wild turkey, any of the seasonings work well. Um, any of the seasoning blends that you like work well. Um, I, you know, lemon flavors, lime flavors, are gonna. It's like an M, natural MSG, and it really livens up the palate and brings out the flavor of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, turkey's really, really lean. Wild turkey's very lean compared to a domestic bird. So you just want to make sure you don't want to oversalt it. You don't want to dry it out. And again, if you brine it, 
you really don't need to add any salt to the outside either. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big deal because, again, we don't want it so salty that your lips pucker up. Like I said, it's just we don't want to ruin those. We work hard to get turkey and clean it. You know, cleaning them is not always the easiest thing in the world either. But right. we do all that work, and we want it to turn out right. And having a bird that's too salty is just as bad as overcooking to me. Yep. Let's talk about cooking some turkey now. So what is the most simple, most delicious way, in your opinion, to cook wild turkey? And it's that time. So if you do not subscribe to the premium content of the Turkey Hunter podcast, you're probably getting pretty upset with me right now because we're getting into recipe time with Scott. So our premium content subscribers with the premium episode this week are going to hear some wild turkey recipes. They're going to hear Scott and I speak French. I know you're impressed. You didn't think I could speak French, did you? But that's what you're going to hear. And we are going to talk about cooking thighs and legs of the wild turkey. Now, if you want to become a subscriber to the premium content of the Turkey Hunter podcast, all you have to do is text the word, make it one word, text the word Turkey Hunter to the number 44222. Once you do that, you'll receive a text back from me with instructions. And if you follow those instructions, I will email you a link to where you can go to subscribe to the show. Subscribing to the premium content costs $12 per year. $12 per year. And if you think about it, that's less than a lot of magazine subscriptions. And it's less than going to Starbucks twice a year. And you're going to get better content and stuff that's better than you're going to get in Starbucks. Also, one American dollar of every subscription, from every subscription, is going back to the NWTF to help support the people who support us turkey hunters. So when you subscribe for a year, you'll get not only the premium content for this episode, but you'll get the premium content of all of the past episodes and your subscription to the premium content will be good for a year. So for the next 52 weeks from the time you subscribe, you'll get the premium content in those episodes as well. I'm going to continue to give you good free content, but if you want the full episodes, you've got to subscribe to the premium content. All right, that's all that I've got for you guys this week. But before I let you go, you know, I'm going to ask you for a favor and the favor is this. Tag one of your hunting buddies that you think would want to hear this week's episode about cooking wild turkey on Facebook or tag them on Twitter as well. That would be a huge help to the show and would be much appreciated by me. So that is it for the week. I'm turning you guys loose. I'm going to get high on a boom lift. And thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. 
to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.